0: Uh, it's good to be here with you this morning. I particularly uh, like your uh, goal, uh, your program uh, set up about the 40 days of uh, studying the Bible. So uh, uh, I'm just excited for you. It's a privilege to be here to share with you this morning. I- I'd like to uh, try to motivate you, encourage you to-, to make a commitment to the Word of God, to do something differently this year, uh, to read it and study it like you never have before. This, this afternoon, Uh, I'm not going to do so much of the encouraging or motivating, but uh, do the impossible. Uh, Summarize 42 hours of Old Testament history uh, down to three. All right, so bring your seatbelt as well as your food, and uh, we'll try to do the best we can. In fact, I've enjoyed that study because I've had to try to summarize some things myself. See, our problem is when we come to church, just the way society and, and church goes today uh, we study the Bible in little snippets, you know, a little bit of Ephesians this morning and then the next Sunday, a little bit of Exodus. And so we just get bits and pieces. And, and unfortunately, we lose the big picture. How does the Bible hold together? What's the Old Testament all about? How is Exodus connected to Isaiah? And so that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to have to leave out a whole, whole lot this afternoon. But but I want to paint some broad with broad strokes and show you how the units fit together, uh, what, what the theme of each book is. And, and, and so instead of studying the Bible with a worm's eye view, like we do in church, you know, going through the grass, looking at each word, uh, we want to be like a bird and we want to fly over the landscape. You know, it's like when we're in the air and the airplane and we look out and oh, the beauty of the earth, right? The rivers, the green, the, and we see it's all connected and, and it matches. Uh, that's how the Old Testament is. These aren't just scattered thoughts. It tells a story and it fits. So this afternoon, uh, that's what I want to try to do, uh, show you how the Old Testament fits together so that when you do the worm's eye view study, uh, you can see how it's connected. You know, you'll you'll peek above the grass and go, oh my gosh, I see something over there. Uh, You know, and you can see that connection. So this morning, back to uh, our topic of uh, motivation uh, for us to uh, study the Bible. Let's see. Uh, This is my topic, the nature and purpose of the Bible. I guess I really don't have to give you too many points or prove uh, that the Bible is important. It's the bestseller today. It outsells any other book, and that's the way it is every single year. And nobody's going to buy a book unless they think it's helpful. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's reading those books, but at least it's showing that the Bible has a high value still in our society. And that is how it has been throughout history. Uh, art and uh, all kinds of music uh, throughout history have been influenced by uh, Christianity. Uh, the, the Gutenberg Press, when it started working in what, sometime in the mid-1400s, uh, the first book it printed was the Latin Bible, uh, 200 copies a year. Can you, no wonder it was so expensive. No wonder you had to go to church to read the Bible, and they would chain it to the front. They had to chain the Bible. People would steal it. They'll open up to the Ten Commandments where it says, Thou shalt not steal, and people still take it. You know, know, people valued the Bible. And that's what I want to share with you today, my passion, so that you too will value the Bible. I have a quote here from Woodrow Wilson, and boy, I wish some of our presidents today would uh, uh, speak of the Bible in this manner. Uh, He said many years ago, I am sorry for the men who do not read the Bible daily. I wonder why they deprive themselves of the strength and the pleasure. I should be afraid to go forward if I did not believe that the... I can't read my writing. ...that there lay at the foundation of all our schooling and of all our thought this incomparable and unimpeachable Word of God. I believe that the Bible is the center of our thoughts, the center of our worldview. It will influence our values and thus how we live. And so that's what I want to stress this morning, the importance of the Bible. And I'm going to do it through two topics. The nature of the Bible. What is it in itself? And then secondly, the purpose of the Bible. And as you can see on the slide, uh, I think it has uh, uh, three... uh, I'm going to state three truths of the nature and then state uh, at least three uh, purposes of the Bible. Uh, So in the three points about the nature of the Bible, first we're going to show that it is divine. It is of divine origin. And that's important because that means it's not of human origin. And if it's of divine origin, that means God has spoken. And if God has spoken, then we should respond. It is true. So if the Bible is of God, we should listen to it. Secondly, if, if the Bible is from God and God is truth, then the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true. That means it's trustworthy and reliable and we can depend upon it. And that knocks over the third domino. You know how you set up dominoes and you have fun knocking the first one? See, if God's the author of the Scripture, then the Scripture must be true. If the Scripture is true, then it means it must be what? Relevant to today. It's alive. It's not a dead book. Yes, it was written many years ago. But it comes from God who makes it alive. It's like a seed. It has a power within itself and it changes people's lives. And that's why most of us are here today. Somebody shared the Word of God with you, you believed something, and it changed you. And we still go back to the Word of God for its wisdom. So let's look at these three uh, truths. First of all, the Bible is divine. My key text here is 2 Timothy. Uh, I won't need to read this passage. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, which says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for training and uh, for correction, for training and righteousness, that the men of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it makes three statements. It says something about the Bible. It is God inspired. It is profitable. And it works for these four purposes to teach us so that we can be equipped for ministry. Now, my, there's a lot we could say here, but I just want to focus on that first statement. All Scripture is inspiro- inspired. Uh, first of all, what in the first century do they mean by Scripture? It's the Hebrew word graphe, uh, the Greek word graphe. <laughs> but uh, uh, like graphics, you know, graphic designers, you hear that. It's the word graphe, writing, all Scripture. In the first century, it meant the Old Testament, At the time Paul wrote this to Timothy, not all the epistles had been written. All the New Testament wasn't there. It wasn't until the 3rd or 4th century that uh, the early church fathers decided it would be these 26 books that were inspired by God. And so we have to not be uh, anachristic, anachronological, anyway, out of time (laughs) and and, and interpret this as we would today and go, oh, that's just all the Bible. No, it meant in that 1st century the Old Testament. And so even though I'm an Old Testament scholar and maybe you expected an Old Testament sermon, uh, I'm going to look at the New Testament because the New Testament is making comments about the nature and purpose of the Old Testament. So when I say Bible here this morning, I'm kind of essentially meaning the Old Testament. Or we could say the Bible Jesus used. It It was good enough for him. It's good enough for me. All right. Now, I recognize there is another testament, and the New Testament's valuable too. <laughs> so, the Bible, all Scripture, all the Old Testament is inspired. Now, what does this word inspired mean? Well, it's the Greek word theonoustos. It's a combination of two words, theo, uh, like theology, or the, the son of Cosby on that old TV show. Uh, uh, it means God. I don't know who would name their kid God. I mean, that's giving the wrong impression, isn't it? But uh, Theo and then Neustis with a silent P. Uh, It's also related to our word pneuma. Pneuma. Uh, Anybody have a workshop and you have uh, uh, pneumatic tools? All of us drive cars that have pneumatic tires. That is, there's air in them. They're air driven. And, And the reason I want to stress this is because I think the NIV does a better translation when it says all Scripture is God breathed. Uh, our other translations will say uh, all Scripture is inspired by God, but that's a little bit misleading because that's like a guy on the beach and a beautiful girl walks by and he goes, oh, "I'm inspired to write a sonnet." You know that that's taking truth in, but here it says not the person is inspired, but the product, the paper, the Scripture is inspired, and the word "ending" means it's breathed out. So we really should say all Scripture is expired. Oh, but that doesn't sound too good either. That sounds like some food that ran past its date. But but that would be accurate. And, and so we have to paraphrase the meaning of this word. There's no English equivalent. And I think the NIV is really cr- close. All Scripture is the very breath of God. Yes, God used human beings, but whatever they wrote, it was His will. And that's why I added Second Peter one twenty to 20-21 and the idea of human agency. Because when you read that text, it says, No prophecy of Scripture came about out of the human imagination, but holy men of God, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote the Word of God. Notice that says three statements. The Scriptures are not of human origination. Humans are agents. And they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, now this is very important. uh, Because this tells us that the Bible is not a god man book as if we had equal power in making it it's a god author through men we're here and if god is true what they wrote is true because the key word is moved god used their own human personalities paul's a rabbi peter's a fisherman a sailor and we know they talk differently right they speak differently but yet both of them produce the word of god they write with different grammar Different diction, you know. So uh, my, my point is God worked through or moved, the text says, in Second Peter 1. God moved the human authors to write what he said. And that word moved, uh, my proof comes from Acts. It's used of the wind moving a ship. Ooh, that's a good illustration. See, here, here's the, the men, the boat, they're rowing, trying to get somewhere. But the wind blows it in a certain direction. And directs it. It's just like the Holy Spirit moves and blows those human writers to write exactly what God desired. So that tells us that the Bible is of divine origin. If it's not of divine origin, then it's of human origin. It's just human words, just like other religious books. And I've wasted 30 years of my life studying it or studying Hebrew so I can understand the Old Testament in the original language. Uh, I could give you some arguments to show that it's kind of divine. Uh, you know, the Old Testament has 39 books in our Protestant Bible. It was written by over 30 different people, and it was written over a time period of 1,500 years. But you know what? It kind of tells a pretty consistent story. Yes, there's a little bit of difficulties, there's some rough spots, but that's amazing. Uh, for example, let's take a topic like psychology. Let's get over 30 different authors. Uh, Let's gather them scattered through 1,500 years. Let them write what they believe. And let's throw it in a book. And what do we have? A mess. (laughs) Confusion. So the Bible is... Why does it have that amazing unity? Could it be that there's one mind behind the different writers? Ah, yeah. Maybe it is of supernatural origin. And we, call, and we could also look at fulfilled prophecies as well, couldn't we? Just demonstrate. The, the Bible's telling the truth. So it's of divine origin. And that lays the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about. If the Bible's not of God, then it may not be true. So that's my next implication and next truth. Now, there's a little bit of Hebrew for you if you want to see how it's written. Um, John 17, Jesus is praying in the upper room and he's praying for disciples and for us. And he says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. And your word is truth. Uh, John 10, 35 says the scripture is unbroken. Matthew 5, 17 to 18, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. These were Jesus' words himself. He said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Let's back up a little bit. What do you mean by law and the prophets? Well, they're not using the word Old Testament yet. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, they've got the law, the first five books. They have a prophetic section and then an extraneous group called the writings. We can see that later when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection and he tells the disciples, Have you not read about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which, are the, which is the first book of the writings? So, nonetheless, what I'm saying is Jesus is referring to the natural way of referring to their Bible in that day. He didn't say, "I did not come to abolish the Old Testament, the Law, or the Prophets, but to fulfill." I'm glad he said that. If if he hadn't, we, we, we wouldn't be here today. I'd be out of a job because the Old Testament's done, right? Don't need it. But all Scripture is inspired by God, and Jesus said that I've come to fulfill it. And, not one, and until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will fall off. It will come to pass. Uh, jot, referring to the yod, the Hebrew letter, and the Hebrew letters are a certain size, and the yod is the smallest letter. The tittle is the smallest stroke distinguishing one letter from another, much like on your font. So on the computer, you know, uh, you can get a different font, and, and it's like a serif, you know, a thickening of one aspect of a letter. to to make it look uh, nicer or prettier, however you want to look at it. And so Jesus is saying all the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled down to what? The smallest letter and the seraphs. Wow. He has a high view of Scripture. He's saying it is true. And therefore, if it's true, it's authoritative. And if it's authoritative, then that means I need to submit to it. You say, it's not just random words, random truth. It's from God to me, and it's true and authoritative and therefore reliable. There's other people today that would like to challenge the Bible, <clears throat> and I think there was some Newsweek article, wasn't there, a couple weeks back uh, uh, that had some uh, negative words about the Bible, but they're, they're way off uh, I don't want to even waste uh, comments of time talking about that article. But, but there's some people like to challenge the truth of the Bible. And I have a little story of a man said to a boy, if you can prove one thing in the Bible is true to me, I'll believe that the Bible is true. And so the little boy said, bend over, I want to tell you something. And as the man bent over, the little boy reached up and grabbed his nose and he twisted it and blood spurted out. And the little boy shouted with glee, the ringing of the nose bringeth forth blood, Proverbs thirty thirty three. You know, the the Bible is true. Other people, archaeologists will look at the Bible and go, hey, the Bible says there's a Sargon was the uh, king who marched through Jerusalem in those days. And we don't have that. Nowhere is that in, in our records. Okay, this was said over 100 years ago. And we kept digging and digging. And guess what we found? Sargon's palace. We now know more about Sargon than any other Assyrian king even though you probably don't know much about him either. And they also said, what about those Hittites? The Bible made that up so the Israelites would look better because there's no Hittites. We haven't found any Hittites 100 years ago. And now what? You can go to the University of Chicago and you can get a PhD in Hittiteology. <laughs> so who, who was wrong? The Bible repeatedly affirms its truthfulness. And so we don't have to argue about the Bible. We don't have to defend it. We just need to use it. You know, someone breaks into your house and you pull out a gun, you don't say, Hey, if you can take another step, I'm going to pull back this hammer, which is going to pull this trigger, and it's going to come forward at such a force that it's going to send this little projectile through the uh, uh, gun, and it's going to enter your body at such a velocity, it's going to hurt. (laughs) We don't explain how the gun works, we don't defend it. We use it. That's how we need to look at the Bible. People are always going to question it, they're always going to challenge it because they're unbelievers. What do you expect? So we just keep using God's Word anyway and give them God's Word. We don't have to defend it. We just need to read it and use it. So the Bible is of divine origin. The Bible is true. And that leads us to my third statement, and that is the Bible is alive. Uh, Hebrews 4, 12. uh, Always uh, this morning I fumbled on this verse, so I better read it. Uh, I know um, half of what it says, but... I want to get it exactly right uh, this second service. Uh, 412. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges our thoughts and attitudes. The Bible's not dead. It's an old book, yes, but it's alive. God inspired it, He's behind it. God's eternal. The Bible is true, and therefore the text still speaks to us today. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, I have a quote from him. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. We can look at changed lives to see if the Bible's alive. Do you have a friend who you said, oh, that guy's really weird. He'll never become a Christian. Oh, my gosh. I have some friends like that. They were just transformed. And I, I just... I'm amazed. How can that be? He's never done that. He's never lived that way. Uh, we can think of um, uh, uh, Paul, the apostle, the great persecutor of the church, the the Jew to the nth degree, trying to kill Christians, and on the road to Damascus, he had a little encounter, and now he's the great apostle Paul. Who changed him? God did through His Word. What about Chuck Colson? You know, the hatchet man of Richard Nixon. Uh, He died just recently. And oh my goodness, the last days of his life, what was he doing? Ministering to people in prisons. Man, he had a changed heart. The Bible is alive. It still changes people. Uh, um, So with that uh, basis then, let's look at the purpose of uh, the Old Testament. Uh, We can summarize it as... uh, it, it, it brings about spiritual birth, it promotes spiritual growth, and it helps in spiritual warfare. And, and it, the Bible is beautiful here. It uses metaphors for most of these pictures of the function of Scripture. So let's look at the first one, and that is the Bible is uh, uh, like a seed. It promotes spiritual birth. First uh, Peter 1, uh, 23 to 25. Uh-huh. Let me find that text for you. I, I should have put written it out on the slide. I feel a little guilty this morning. Uh, here I am saying the Bible is so valuable, and yet I didn't put the words for you to read. And yet your worship leaders, oh, they had the scriptures up. We all read Romans 3 together, and I was going, awesome. And then I went, oh, terrible. <laughs> you know, do what you say. Uh, but you know, I was in a hurry, and uh, but there's no excuses. No excuses. I'm I'm guilty. First uh, Peter, all these. First Peter one twenty three. Here we go. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass. All their glory, all our stuff that makes us happy, is like flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. I should have read that a while ago, right? For the Bible's alive. Pretty morbid. We're going to die. Word of God to keep going, but I'm looking at the word seed there. It says you were born again by the seed of God. It, those spiritual thoughts in God's Word gets implanted in us, and over time something happens, and a new life emerges, just like corn or whatever. Uh, if you have a garden and you plant something, well, who makes that seed do that thing? You know what? What does that? There's some type of power in that seed, isn't it, man? The word of God's like that it starts creating things in you it, it brings you to spiritual birth uh, Bill Bright uh, was a great Christian I don't know if you know him now he's deceased but he was founder of Campus Crusade for Christ uh, he helped write or promote the, the four spiritual laws this little gospel tract and uh, he was teaching at a seminar one time and uh uh, how, how to evangelize with people, and, and he's telling them to use the four spiritual laws, and et cetera, et cetera. And finally, a student raised his hand and said, Yeah, but Dr. Bright, what happens when you get those real smart people, uh, those that really know things and they challenge you, and, and, you know, like a professor or something like that? What do you do? And Bill Bright insightfully said, This is what I do I take the four spiritual laws and I read it again, but this time very slowly. <laughs> What's he saying? Human thoughts and arguments may not prevail, but God's Word can bring about new life. It's where the power is. It changes people's hearts. Do you remember Psalm 51? David is praying for forgiveness, and he didn't call out to Yahweh and say, Oh, Yahweh, my personal loving God, created me a clean heart. He said, Oh, Elohim created me a clean heart. Elohim, one of the names for God, stressing His transcendence and His power. We can't change ourselves. David couldn't cleanse his own heart and be generated, be a different person who had committed murder and adultery with Bathsheba. He said, God, I need a divine transformation. Created me a clean heart. Oh, my goodness. God's power is in his word. He can bring about new birth. So you may have some friends or family members like I do that are unbelievers. Just keep giving them the word of God. Keep giving it to them. All right, let's move on to second truth, and that is the Bible is compared to food. It's compared to bread, milk, and meat. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus is being tempted. Uh, we all know the story, 40 days without food. Satan comes, tries to get him to act independently of the Father and to discredit him, and uh, he says, turn these stones into bread. Jesus says what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Oh, my gosh, What's he recognizing? We're not just human beings. We're just not a mass of cells that have evolved. We have a spiritual component. We're made in the image of God. Somehow we're different. I don't know really how that all happened scientifically. But I do know we're human, but we're also spiritual. And just like I need physical food to live, I need spiritual food. Oh, I wish we had learned that. Every time I'm going to pray that every time you eat, God will whisper in your ear and say, have you eaten spiritually? You know, I, I never have to be reminded or reprimanded to eat lunch. You know, at 1130, oh, gosh, I'm hungry. <laughs> it's time. Wow. We need to take in God's Word. I love the First Peter passage, uh, 2 to 2. Um, he, oh, I'm right here. Awesome. Um, he says... Like newborn babes, crave pure milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation. Illustration, commandment, the result. Like a newborn babe, crave, long for the milk so that you may grow in salvation. And how does a baby crave milk? Ah! I want milk and I want it now. (laughs) They're crazy, right? I had four sons. Now I've got five grandchildren, and they can't speak, so they cry and scream frequently. <laughs> oh, I wish I had that kind of craving for God's Word. Oh, I feel a little guilty now. Like newborn babes crave God's Word so that you can grow. You don't feel like you're growing? You need to get in God's Word. It's milk. It helps you grow. Got to have the milk. That's why we have church. Ooh, that's why Pastor Mike has his 40-day program going. Awesome. Uh, he also calls it meat. First Corinthians and Hebrews 5. Oh, we could really talk about those passages. Th- those were slow Christians. I don't know what to say about it, you know. Uh, uh, they had problems. I-, I say that, but, you know, that may be us too. I don't know if you've read those passages carefully, but remember in, in uh, Hebrews... Uh, the writer, whoever it is, said to them, I wish you guys uh, could talk with me about Melchizedek, but you know, you're not ready for it now. You're stunted. I can't teach you greater truths because you ought to be teachers by now. Ooh, what's he saying? They have not grown spiritually. He said, I still got to give you milk. I can't give you steak. No ribeyes for you because you don't know how to eat it. Ooh, that tells us we can be limited in our understanding of God's Word. I don't want that. Just think about it. We could all answer all those questions about Melchizedek if those Hebrews just had been on on the ball. But he says, "No, I can't go on there. I got to teach you some more milk." Isn't that amazing? Corinthians likewise. Remember, there's spiritual Christians and then what the fleshly Corinthians kind of Christian that are tied up in the things of the world as well as God's word, and and then you have the unbeliever or the natural man. Uh, Abe Lincoln had a nice quote. He said, I believe the Bible is the best gift that God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. He believed in God's Word. He needed to grow by it. He needed to be nourished. Let's move to our next picture. It's like rain and snow. Finally, we can go to Isaiah 55, the Old Testament. You probably know this passage. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Wow. God has a purpose, and it's like rain that brings up the grass this spring the Word of God is going to bring up and achieve the purpose for which God has sent it. It has a power. There was a, a South Islander after World War II. He was showing a former uh, uh, American GI. And he said, look at the Bible. He was gloating over the Bible. This is so great. And the soldier said, uh, we've moved beyond that. We, we, don't, we don't worry about the Bible anymore. And, and the uh, South Islander said, well, it's a good thing that we haven't or else you would have been a meal by now. You know, it changed his life. It changed his diet, you know. So the word of God is like rain. It will produce what it was designed to do. Uh, Next, uh, spiritual growth illustration, a lamp. Uh, It's found in several passages, 119, 105. uh, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It guides me. It directs me. And and, uh, today, a equivalent might be a flashlight. And I was trying to think, what would we say today if we were writing a psalm? We might say the Bible is my GPS, you know. We call our GPS Judy, that way I can argue with her. Judy, I don't think that's the right straight. And Sherry keeps saying, trust Judy. She never gets it wrong because I do make it wrong sometimes. And so we have this little thing going, but my GPS, God's Word directs us and instructs us in the way how we ought to live. You know, when my uh, Toyota breaks down, I have a Camry. I I don't go look in a Chevrolet manual or a Ford manual. I look in the Toyota owner's manual, my glove box in the first place, because you know what? Toyota made the car. They made it and they're telling me how it operates and what you should do to keep it operating. Oh my gosh, God's created the world. He's created human beings and He's what? He's given us the owner's manual. Maybe we should use it. Instead of listening to the world, say we ought to do this or live that way. Man, here we got the owner's manual. How should, how should I live? It's right here. But besides spiritual growth and spiritual birth, the third purpose of the Bible is that it's good for spiritual warfare. Uh, we all know Hebrews four twelve. Just we just quoted it a while ago. It's like a sword. Ephesians six. Remember it says, "Be strong in the Lord." You know, do battle spiritually, and then it talks about put on the armor of God: the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and uh, um, the belt of truth. And then it says what? And lift up the sword of the word. It can defend you. And you say, well, how can that do that? Well, it can convict you of sin. It can warn you of sin. Psalm one nineteen eleven, I think, helps us here. Thy word have I hid mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Ooh, if I hide God's word in my heart and memorize it, it will protect me. Think of Jesus. Remember when he was tempted by Satan? Satan was trying to get him off track, out, act outside of God's will. Three times Jesus quoted the Old Testament. And what book? Deuteronomy. If your spiritual life was dependent on your knowledge of Deuteronomy, how are you doing? (laughs) I wouldn't be doing very good either, believe me. Oh my goodness, Jesus knew God's Word and He used it as a sword to parry off the attacks of Satan. The Word of God defends us against truth. Every day we're bombarded. Movies, books, friends, newspapers telling us this is the way we ought to live and this is how we need to define this or do that. Oh my gosh, how do we defend it? With the Word of God. Romans twelve two: Do not be conformed to this world and its thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? Probably the Bible. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need God's Word. It protects us. It guards us. It enables us to live the life that our owner and creator t- created us for. He knows how we operate. Finally, in conclusion, uh, I'm not going to do the parable of the sower, but uh, Pastor Mike said that he had preached that recently to you. And, and what I'm just saying here is, uh, you know, if you're not growing in things, it, it's really not the Bible's fault. God is faithful. His word will be fulfilled. So it must be the soil. What kind of soil are you? Are you wet? Are you fertilized? Are you ready? Are you praying? Are you preparing yourself? Are you taking in God's word? Uh, you know what kind of soil you can 't produce good fruit unless you 're the right soil and, and and I look at myself too when I say that we need to study uh, god 's word. we need to take it in, be receptive. Uh, there is a story that I want to end with it 's a story of a man from Kansas City, and he was his job was to blast rock and uh, he got too close something a- happened it was an accident and uh, he, uh, uh, he lost his eyesight and he lost his hands. And he had to have plastic surgery on his face. And he was a Christian. He said, oh, I can't read God's Word. I treasure it. And that's, the, that's what I want to do in life is just I, I can't read it. And, and, but he learned about somebody in England that had learned to read the Bible with their lips. You know? And so uh, he he bought the books and he had a teacher come in to teach him. And, and he realized as he was uh, using his lips to touch the uh, the raised imprints that... had lost all his nerve endings in his lips and so he started crying because he couldn't read god's word anymore and he he bent down and he kissed the bible as he was saying goodbye and he noticed that his tongue still had nerve endings and he pulled the teacher back and he learned to read the bible with his tongue and he's read it four times completely through with his tongue. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel a little guilty. I've got eyes. I have every opportunity to read God's Word. And there's people that have died to put God's Word in our hands. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English for us. And he died for it. And yet we don't appreciate it. But it's for spiritual birth, spiritual growth. We've got to have it. It's like food. You see my point? And he uses tongue surely we can commit ourselves. I want you to commit yourselves. This year, I'm going to read the Bible and get some help if you, if, if you need some help. You have that 40-day program, and I love that because of this. You know, I was thinking, my sermon's not going to be good today. I can motivate you, but you know, some things I'm, I, I'm motivated that I know is good, but I don't do it, like exercise. So I try to boil it down to something real simple for me. Exercise or die. You know? <laughs> You know, take in God's word, His food, or die. But you know, I still don't work out enough. Until I learned if I join this group at four o'clock and go do the aerobic uh, step, aerobic step is that right, ladies? I don't know. It's mostly girls in there and old people like me. But 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 nonetheless, I've learned that when there's a group, it's a little more pressure to be accountable. Oh my gosh. You know, the next 40 days, the whole church, or right, 300 of you, something, or what, dedicated to reading the Bible and doing that. You're doing it as a group. You can be accountable. How are you doing? You can encourage each other. And then the third thing, though, I see is not only the group aspect, but, you know, after you do something for 40 days, it might become a habit. That's what we need. Because I realize when I work out every day and I say, no matter what, it's four o'clock. If I make it a habit at the start of the semester, semester just started. Yeah, I miss Thursday and Friday. I'm going Monday, though. If I can make it a habit, I will do it every every all through the semester. But if I let it slide, won't do it. Hey, guess what? You guys are got 40 days to do it. It might be a habit at the end. I love that program, that idea. You've got some mechanics in place. But you need to make a commitment and do it. And I pray that you will do that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the word of God, which is a gift to us uh, through the blood of uh, righteous men it was given to us. And it's alive today. Oh, Lord, we value it. But we still, in our own humanness, we trip up and we can't always get ourselves to study it. I pray, Lord, through this program, through this, this month, the 40 days, that these people will come to see your word and be encouraged and, and, and live in, uh, their lives would be transformed and that it will become a habit in their lives, that they might experience the joy of your word and then live a life that is indeed pleasing to you. Because the word is the word, but our whole goal, Father, is to love you and to do what you desire, and it comes through your word. In your name we pray, amen.